Welcome, everyone, to the Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, who dat? It's Pete. Hello, Pete. I'm so excited to show you my Valve. The Cloak and Dagger podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 106, Funhouse Mirrors, is sponsored by the good kind waiters. Never cheap out. Pete, before we dive on into Cloak and Dagger, the latest adventure of Freeform's dynamic duo, I have to point out there's another dynamic duo out there about which we will be podcasting this weekend. I refer to, of course, Ant-Man and the Wasp, a movie that uh, is already doing better than the initial box office projections. Probably, Pete, because it's a ton of fun. No surprise here, Matt. Riding the wave just over two months here uh, from uh, Avengers Infinity War. And uh, yeah, you need to go see it if you haven't already. And we will bring you our spoiler-filled review on Sunday. With that sizzle now taken care of, Pete, give us the recap for this episode of Cloak and Dagger. Our tag scene, Matt, begins with Evita and Aunt Tanti. Uh, doing a reading here. They're doing one for the city. Uh, she doesn't smell the S-E-X on uh, Evita, though. She smells the power in that boy she's been hanging out with. Past, present. If Matt Loa is with them today, they'll even get the future. And the camera centers in on that 3D-printed doll uh, with the voodoo powers and the whatnot as we go to the title card. And then, Matt, why is my TV overheating? There's some of the sexing going on. What with the angles and everything? It's a blonde woman. Oh, that's not Tandy. That's another lady with Dwayne as they get to his garage of his mill here. And Tyrone spies all of this Mina Hess meanwhile is walking to her vehicle in her heels she's speaking French uh, there's a note on her mud covered SUV that uh, she's blocking somebody's spot not cool um, in front of the Roxon Gulf building there's a biodiesel sticker on her bumper and she's putting on her boots just then, Tandy comes up bringing coffee. Uh, she's Liz, though, the new intern. Carruthers said, you know, Carruthers, oh, well, you're going to need waiters, young lady. Tyrone takes a look around inside Dwayne's mill there as he's giving out instructions and then wants a job. But there's no openings. He could use something, however, after that state final loss. It's his last game now. He's wondering if he chose the wrong path, if maybe there's something else he could do. Um, but Dwayne tells him he wouldn't want to do what he does. He's smart, after all. He could work in an office. But Tyrone wants to be back in the ward, whereas most try to get out. What if that night had gone another way? You know, the night Billy was killed, but Tyrone is headed to college. 
And then he spots a guy leaving with a red backpack. At the precinct, a woman walks out upset. O'Reilly is checking photos on a phone. Fuchs, her bearded backseat cop car friend, (laughs) has noticed quite a few birds being flipped today. He doesn't ask questions, and O'Reilly likes that. But she's attracting attention. You know, the kind Connors gives, and he's flammable. Don't play with fire, okay? Tyrone tails the boy with the red backpack, but he's caught, and a gun is pulled, and he's told not to do that again. Act two begins with Evita's aunt explaining that the past in New Orleans is cycles of life and death, perhaps another hurricane like in some cycles, or fires, famines, diseases, wars. Turns out New Orleans is a goodie bag of bad oogie down there. Aunt Tonti thinks some kind of natural disaster is coming the next story might be evita's man evita's man tyrone is in the church uh, tandy returns so now they're visiting one another tandy cuts something with her uh light daggers tyrone can't summon his power at will he tells her about the kid who pulled a gun on him. He should have just blipped away, but he didn't. The drug runner is an employee of his brother's old friend, Dwayne, who seems to have the upper hand on Connors. Tyrone explains he asked for a job. There are no openings. Tandy explains to him, sometimes you got to create an opening She's about to go swamping with her environmental scientist friend whose dad survived the rig explosion. Not a friend, she corrects, her mark. Will she use her hope magic on her? Well, she says Tyrone perhaps should use his nightmare magic on Dwayne. In an old amusement park, Mina is baking. And then she asks Tandy to come on up and do some science. She got those good waiters and she saved her receipts. Uh, With Ding, the heart-shaped cookies are ready. Uh, The Ruxon blueprints are laid out. And we learn that Mina Hess made the Ruxon building green. She's cooked up these cardamom cookies. They are a natural antidepressant. Um, but when questioned about the oil rig, all she wants to do is discuss her fickle oven. On the street, Ty watches the runner with several other young men. O'Reilly circles spots back at the precinct, and Connors comes over and tells her that she works too hard. But she has questioned a club dealer who's never met her boss, wondering how he stays so insulated. Connor says maybe he's smart. 
but she's pointed out the patterns. She's squeezed five others. These are Aaron boys. They keep losing her though. In one particular area of the city, she points out, uh, she's in the mood for some company. After all, Connors used to stomp those grounds and Fuchs looks disapprovingly. Act three begins with the cards continuing. The present is daunting. Aunt Tonti explains, have to understand the cycles and what you're looking for. And that is the divine pairing. If Ty is one of the pair, then who is the other? While waiting, Mina spots B. Arthur, the American bumblebee, or at least she thinks she does. But on every marsh orchid where they used to be, now she can't seem to find them anymore. And they go on to discuss colony collapse disorder. Hmm, I wonder where, where they came up with that. You know, when a colony disappears, leaving behind only a queen. But you know what? It's not magic. It's just science we don't understand yet because we never hear that in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Turns out someone read Mina's master's thesis. So Tandy, or shall I say Liz, has passed the test. But when we stop looking for something, that's when we let it disappear, right? 65 million years ago, there was a mass extinction of bees like now. Then the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs came. The bees came back after that. New Orleans is kind of like insects. Bees survive. Something special under New Orleans has survived as well. O'Reilly and Connors hit the streets. Uh, she was looking for a fix, but the cop in her got curious says Connors still, even though these dealers are dealing, she can't allow them to sell to kids. They don't get a free ride just for a free bump. So he talks about getting inside someone else's mind, perhaps predicting what they might do. The lesson, if you start to follow somebody around, you could perhaps become them. They see the, young man with the red bag turn a corner and they decide to turn on the sirens and run after him. But Ty grabs the bag. Mina and Tandy arrive where they're headed, which they could have driven there instead of waiting to. But Mina is excited to show off her valve. Rigs are apparently the shotgun beer of Natural resources, a valve, this thoughtful extraction point connected to the new drill, it respects nature. And what happened before, of course, is not going to happen again. No one knew how hot the stuff they were drilling into was going to be, except for Nathan Bowen and her father. Carruthers made Tandy sign an NDA, right? Uh, sure he did. They weren't drilling into oil what they were drilling into burned 10 times better than oil, twice as hot. The pumps couldn't handle it. They didn't stop. Like an oven, they installed pressure re release points across the city, heat shields, 
somebody's got to make lemonade out of buttholes after all. And that was Nathan Bowen. But they pointed the finger back at him, as we already know. But Mina Hess says her father never knew Nathan Bowen to miscalculate in his life. All this is witnessed by Stan, the suit who lurks. He says a heat shield is malfunctioning and Mina checks it. Connors beats the kid in the alley. He tells him he's garnering unwanted attention. O'Reilly says the bag is missing. Someone else must have gotten it. Tandy and Mina check out the heat shield. Tandy reveals, looking at the blueprints, it's in the wrong spot. Stan drilled into a shale bed. 10 feet? No, more like 10 meters. They would have needed a crane to put it where she wanted. It's a dumb call. And Peter Scarborough is going to hear all about this. She's going to come back and reinstall it tomorrow herself while Stan Man can stay in the office and suck up that AC with his vanity plates on his Cadillac. And Tandy uses her light daggers to take out his tires. Tyrone keeps going with the runner's bag and fear leads him to touch that runner and see a monster and the singing of Tisket a Tasket. Act four begins with Antonti explaining that the future is like a freight train. There's no stopping it. Energy builds and it needs to be released. That never changes. Only the divine pairing can stop it. If they're going to stop it, it must happen soon. There's always a point of no return. And that's the end. Dwayne gets a call about the lost bag. Tyrone comes in and shows Dwayne what he found on the street, explains his boy, that's Kevin, dropped it on the first sign of the cops, figured he wanted it back. Does he know what's in it? We never find out, but of course we can assume. Uh, Chris comes by and grabs that. Does Tyrone want a reward? No, he wants to do what Dwayne does. He's going to learn. He's going to ride with him. They're going to finish up Kev's run, see if he really wants what Dwayne has. Tandy and Mina continue to talk there. But what about the blueprint reading, uh, tricking out easy bake ovens, all that? Mina explains uh, she's more like uh, Tandy's father, Nathan, was. Uh, That's a great thing, though. Ivan Hess was a mud man. He was always in the rig with the other guys. Nathan was the Steve Jobs to Mina's father's Wozniak. Um, Tandy would love to talk to uh, Mina's father sometime. And she goes to touch her hand, but she reconsiders. Don't move, though. B. Arthur is on her. And she blows it. And it drifts away. Rebirth in the swamp. Dwayne calls Connors. O'Reilly watches. They're going to meet up tonight, take care of all this. Take care of what? I'll tell you when I see you. 
Connors explains to O'Reilly, he got a guy who knows a guy who might know the mystery dealer. They got to catch him tonight. Are you in? Tyrone questions Dwayne about his call, and the talk quickly moves to survival. New Orleans is a city of survival. And uh, Tyrone explains there's a guy at school who tells him that energy must be released if it's pent up. And it's kind of like that on the streets. Whatever you put out comes back. It's not fair. It's not right. But it's like justice. And Dwayne explains that justice is for white people in some other place, not them there. And we see Tyrone catch a look at himself in the passenger side mirror. Meanwhile, Mina finally asks Tandy why she's asking so much about her father. She's not Liz. She's Tandy. And she's a lousy liar. Final act begins with Aunt Taunty turning over cards and telling Evita that it's been a long time since her Nana taught her. These cards in these positions always scared her the most. She was hoping the cycle would end the pattern, you know, for Evita's boy. What is it, though? One will live and one will die. Tyrone and Dwayne talk, and the discussion quickly turns to basketball and stealing the radio and jumping in the lake to save Billy. What? Dwayne was there that night. It's Billy. It's Tyrone's dead brother who helped to build this business. His blood is in the mill. But Billy would still be dead even if Dwayne came forward. He's got to survive out on these streets. But he's really just in the pocket of a cop. Tyrone explains what kind of heart is she he's showing if he doesn't get justice then Billy Nye died for nothing and there's a knock Connors is outside O'Reilly is in the car he wants five minutes before she comes in she shouldn't look so nervous Dwayne continues to talk to Tyrone but with the knock tells him he's got to get out of there we cut to Mina in a nursing home where she goes to visit her catatonic father with the cookies tells him she saw B Arthur today. Tandy comes in. She's sorry. She lied. The truth never occurred to her because all she does is lie. She was looking for answers for her father. She'd like to try to talk to Ivan who hums when she touches his hand. She sees a door with a latch but as she goes to undo it, the black darkness repels her. Dwayne and Connors meet. He needs, Connors does, help with a problem and tosses Dwayne a gun, tells him that a cop's going to come in here in a minute, and he, Dwayne, is going to kill her. Ty texts O'Reilly. This sloppiness hasn't helped Connors, and now it's time for Dwayne to take O'Reilly out in exchange. Connors will keep the NOPD off Dwayne. He shot people, but never to death. O'Reilly surprises them, but Connors 
turns and shoots Dwayne and then chases after a runner in tie. In an alley, he shoots three times at Tyrone, who flashes away each time before finally ending up in the church. Tandy asks what's wrong, and their light, dark connection goes haywire again, and he cries to end the episode. Pete, I have to confess before we dive into dark figures here, um, I was a little frustrated by this episode. Okay, a couple of things here. First of all, um, the lady of the night, question mark, who was leaving the police station, A, I first thought it was uh, O'Reilly. I think you did too. B, what purpose did that woman serve? Um, second of all, uh, Dwayne has himself a huggy kissy time friend, although I, I think the way they were both positioned kissing would be difficult, but I digress. What did that do for the story? Dwayne is having uh, intercourse with a lady. Okay. I don't know if Dwayne's married, if that's his wife, if that's not his wife, if he's, 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 he's doing the deed with somebody. What benefit does that give to the story? Uh, hanging thread from last week. Did or did not Riley actually take the cocaine? O'Reilly. O'Reilly. Did, did she or did she not take the cocaine? Totally unaddressed in this episode entirely. Um, and lastly, and I say this absolutely positively, 100% not to be saucy. Uh, I'm saying this because I felt this is where the characters were going. Mina Hess spends a lot of time talking about baking in an episode that could show her doing, you know, non ultra traditional female things like, you know, other than talking about the quality of her cardamom cookies, uh, she could be talking about more science and things like that. To be fair, she does talk about science in the one to two page monologue about bees as a metaphor and all of that. And I'm feeling a little frustrated with Cloak and Dagger, Pete. Pull me back. I, I'm gonna pull, I am I'm gonna the pull you back here. on every single point that you made. Ready? Go. Let's start with the with the bird there. Obviously, we need to continue the storyline that she is shaking down uh, these club girls who get their drugs from runners who don't see the supplier. Okay, so we need to show one of them there. It also needs to connect with Fuchs so that we can point out that we continue to get the wrong kind of attention from Connors. Your next point was about Dwayne and his huggy kissy time friend. A little bit of a misdirect because of the network really there. Uh, that we think for a moment that this is Tandy because it's a blonde woman. Turns out it's just Dwayne's friend. On the uh, Mina Hess situation with the cookies, the oven is the key there, the heat shield that she tricked out the Easy Bake Oven with her father that she's been able to work with this type of uh, device and idea before and now applying it on a far greater scale. I realized that my tangent on the cookies snuffed my initial uh, Mina uh, read that I had on her, which is in addition to her living in this kind of weird, you know, sustainable trailer glass home thing, which which was a very cool set. 
I felt like I was getting a feel from her throughout the episode that maybe there was she was feeling a spark between her and Tandy, and I was like, hey, we don't have enough LGBT representation on TV. Kind of don't have enough in Marvel either. This could be an opportunity. Instead, it was just like she goes from what I don't need an intern go away to okay, hand to the writer. You can join me, intern, to like the next scene. I can't believe you came to my glass trailer home thing. Would you like cookies? And when I'm done monologuing about baking, now we are friends. I felt more of like a surrogate sister situation between the two of them. Um, even strangely from the start, which I think should have been more earned, but then you have to have that break in the trust and then the resumption of it once it's revealed who she is. Um, I believe you also had an issue with uh, how Tandy went about gaining her trust by doing a little research, no? Yeah, and I can see it from both sides, what I'm about to say here. My initial reaction was, how in the world could somebody of Tandy's, you know, I mean, look, Tandy is not like in college, university and things like that. How is she going to read this master's level thesis on environmental science, environmental engineering, whatever it might be? It clearly is a science math combo there, you know, with some environment, which I know is science, but it's like we have, you know, hard science like chemical chemistry and we have environment, we have engineering and all that. So Tandy's going to read that and get a basic understanding. And then I was like, all right, you know what? She doesn't need to understand the unique chemical makeup of this that the other could she read it and still get a feel for the basics of it enough to bs her way through because she is a con woman okay fine but then it's like where is she gonna find mina hess's thesis i felt like you know i know you have a partial answer to that pete my my feeling ultimately is with two lines it could have been yes well first of all let me say this pete where is where, where could somebody uh, go to find some of your graduate work you could go right into the columbia university library where my master's thesis from 1998 is on file so um, literally in two sentences of dialogue it could be like oh well mina you found it out i went to the university of new orleans satellite campus where your thing is online okay or yes i read it because you posted it online instead it's just like oh don't you know i read master's theses anytime i need to you know for story when story could have given us literally like i mean look you even could have leaned into the story could have leaned into the the whole question at least question in my mind could have said yeah uh it's convenient that you posted that on your blog mina uh, okay that's an answer i might not love the answer guess what it is an answer that i can't refute yeah and again i can see your point but there is an explanation uh albeit off screen to what you're saying um so i guess what i'm saying is the the viewing might come across more disappointing than the explanation of it is well my little tantrum over i think i'm looking through my notes here no other major concerns here pete let's talk about some of the dark figures let's start with Dwayne, who if you weren't quite sure 
maybe he's a little in the drug world. No, he's a lot in the drug world, isn't he? Yeah, he's sending uh, essentially mules, runners all over the city. Obviously, this is in conjunction with Connors. Uh, what their end game past the drugs is, is anybody's guess. Uh, I mean, certainly end of the line for him. I did wonder briefly, you know, is this one of these gunshots that you come back from or, you know, because again, with, with the magic of story, yes, he's shot in the chest, which is usually story clue for your kaput, but it very easily could have been hang in there, Dwayne EMS is on the way, but I guess not. I guess he's, I guess he's for gone. Uh, Pete, let's move on to Kev, the kid who, uh, Pulled a gun on our hero Tyrone. Yeah, I mean, one of the underlings under Dwayne uh, doesn't have the conviction to uh, to be able to do it. So might be some good in him um, and uh, really exists in the story. One for Tyrone to get the backpack and to follow him and two to be able to take his place between Dwayne and Kevin. I think the show is giving a, a good attempt to look at, uh, problems of lower income problems in the African-American community in New Orleans, uh, you know, problems of drugs in the community, whatever kind of slice of life you want to pick from there. I just feel like it, it somehow simultaneously is it, it's so on the nose as to not feel completely applicable to the audience. You know, like I didn't walk away going, oh, man, now I have a new understanding of how the streets are so rough. It's just, hey, Dwayne gave a monologue that said there's, you know, the world of justice. That's the white world. And then there's our world where we have to make these decisions and the streets are tough and I'm doing what I can to get by. OK, I mean, that's a fine speech that i've heard basically in many other shows and uh, okay pete let's keep it positive though unless you have a response there we can I, move on I, I think it it bears acknowledgement and it opens a window into understanding why people who don't feel like they can get justice might then turn to crime I feel like in the writer's room on the big whiteboard, there were these moments around this episode. And I'm just, I don't just mean, you know, like in the making of this episode in 105, 106, perhaps where we're headed for 107, where it was like, guys, we're doing it. We're talking about problems of the inner city, poverty, race. We're also talking about the corrupt cop, the white cop who's gotten away with it. We're talking about all these contemporary issues. They're all coming together. They're connected to Tyrone. They're connected to Tandy. And we're all headed towards what I will assume is the big finale where there is justice, not white man justice or black man's justice, justice for all. And I feel like they were really jazzed that they were doing it. And I look at the product here and I go, okay, you're going through a certain a, a certain level of moderately effective motions on talking about life in the inner city and you're talking about police corruption and you're talking about white and black. But none of it's landing squarely except for Tyrone's speech in the last episode, which is directly about you do not understand what it's like to be a black man in America, which 
hey, you're cutting through the you're cutting through the comic book stuff there to really give me a message. Okay, message received. Got it. Really interesting discussion. Here, less so. This is the first Marvel Cinematic show to really examine race. Luke Cage looks at racial issues, but only through one side of the lens, if you will. And I think in having Tandy have white privilege, albeit stripped of the monetary part of it, um, and to see Tyrone and to so smartly flip it around and now have him have wealth, yet be associating with people from his old neighborhood who are trying to make good, yet the system seems gamed against them. It, it's both timely and important to see on TV. But is it hitting the target is my question. It's. I think a... that it is. I, I think from the standpoint of where this story is headed, this allegory of light and dark, the the thing that is under... New Orleans. I mean, it's funny with the discussion in this episode of that, and we're going to talk more about it in our next segment with light theories, but it feels a little reminiscent of runaways. And I don't know that that's a bad thing, but it feels like it's occurring earlier in their run. Oh, there's something beneath the city. Um, I certainly would agree with that. And I'll just mention as one more tangent, the something beneath the rig, which is revealed to be drum roll, better gas than there is right now. Like it's super oil. It's super gas. Yeah. Like (laughs) I call that a story dark figure because it was like, really out of all the things, out of all the things that this could be that are wildly fictional and straight out of the straight out of our world you're going to make it that the gas that you know the oil company discovered really 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 great oil turbo oil Re- like you know like you could choose from all this fictional stuff like it's a chitari you know cache of weapons uh, uh, hey nice tie back in or if you want to if you want to stay away from that stuff you know it could be you know it could be if you want to even go the powered route Oh man, this is a, a a safe nuclear fuel. You go, whoa! I didn't know that was a thing. What fiction? Instead, it's like the world's best oil. Okay. Well, Pete, we can certainly agree on the villainy of Connors. Uh, I mean, my goodness, Pete, setting up his you know partner in Dwayne to kill a cop. So he's setting another guy up to kill a cop. Hey, what's the worst could, that could happen? Dwayne gets off, not the other cop. And, you know, Connor's bad man. Points for unpredictability, certainly. I did not see it coming. I thought for sure he'd find a way to take a shot at O'Reilly. I don't know if Dwayne's fate is sealed, if only because the last shot we have of O'Reilly is her over Dwayne. Could we begin next episode with, but, Connors is the uh, 
you know, one of, one of those deals. But yet again, it, it really just confirms what we seem to think O'Reilly knows. Um, so who knows on that? But uh, Connors is a bad dude and his scar becomes more and more obnoxiously noticeable with each scene that he's in. Lastly, Pete, let's talk Stan Man. <laughs> Listen, uh, the, the the suit who lurks can't be troubled to put the uh, the heat shield in the right place. He's got no attention to detail. He's yet got the uh, the feel for nice things and can't listen to his lady boss, Matt. He's basically everything we loathe. However, I feel like they could have turned the volume up a little bit with him. First of all, just low-hanging fruit here. Have him eating an apple. As we all know, jerks eat apples. Okay? <laughs> but to be a bit more serious, like, there's kind of some vague implied, you know, like, he's not listening to her because he thinks he's better. How about, like, she walks away and he goes... Well, you know what? I take that back partially. When he calls her the B word, I feel like in this day and age to call a female coworker that word, I feel like that that's loaded in a way where it's like, you know, what's next? You're going to say, oh, is it your time of the month? Oh, is this hysterics? Like it's, it's kind of one of those charged words, you know, not as much as the time of the month low blow, but it's kind of like to call a woman the B word you're suggesting, oh, you are just a cranky so-and-so who can't get along with boys at work because whatever, women shouldn't be at work. In a a post-MeToo environment, I mean, that's actionable now. And and it's inactionable in this. Like, what a great moment it would have been for the... We already know Mina is very smart, okay? Multilingual, all this science background, etc. Able to you know, use her sleuth skills to discover pretty quickly that, you know, Liz is Tandy. He calls her the, he calls her a B. She immediately could say, you say that again one more time. I go to HR. You know, you'll be out of here. Don't forget Jones a month ago got his butt handed to him for the exact same reason. What would we, the audience say? Oh my goodness. Strong, independent woman who works for a company as evil as Roxxon is. It's a company that's going to boot this guy out. Well, wait a minute. If Mina hates him and Roxxon could hate him, wow, he really must be a jerk. He's an easily hateable jerk. Or here's another way to do the scene. You say that again, I'm going to report you to HR. And he could be like, you mean Uncle Fred who runs HR? Whatever, B. I like like your last one a little bit better. But again, dealing within a 44-minute time constraint, I think going down the morality road, given the morality that's discussed in terms of race and socioeconomic background is a little much in this amount of time. Boo hoo. They only have 440 minutes over these 10 episodes to touch on some of this stuff. I say jack up the volume a little bit and let's get into some of this stuff. Simple as that. Let's get into some of these issues which appear to be on the periphery and appear to be edges that were sanded off. Let's bring back some of the sharpness. Well, let's talk light theories, Matt. Who gonna die?
I didn't like the whole business with Auntie, and I understand how voodoo is supposed to work, and I understand the whole process there. I, I, I get it. This is quasi-magical here. It's also the writers just doing foreshadowing, which I, I couldn't help but be aware of the entire time. That said, if that's how voodoo is supposed to work, give you a glimpse into the future, okay, fine. At least that's the rule of how it works. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? A, do we have to be committed to it? Maybe I would have liked the scene earlier on where it's like, or even a line, auntie, let's not forget that when it came to cousin, cousin Bill and his wife, you predicted their divorce before they even were married or something like that. You go, okay, this lady's legit, but who's going to live? Who's going to die? Should I really be concerned that in cloak and dagger, you're going to kill cloak or dagger by the <laughs> end of the season? Like, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, an ABC Studios production on Freeform. We're really gonna we're gonna shoot ourselves in the foot and not have a lead next year. Unless Pete asterisk, I've gone dark, now I'll go light. Maybe one of them does die and comes back even more powerful. I think of the comics, uh the, the comics cloak, who is much more ethereal and much more kind of uh out of connection with everyone else other than the very sympathetic tandy maybe that maybe he has to dive and come back well in the comics he was taken out by thanos so ooh, might be on something there matt what yeah. made ivan hess catatonic i think it's going to be revealed pete that the very understandable villainous group rocks on uh the parent company of rocks on golf where we do great things with pelicans like clean them <laughs> i don't know why we had to but we clean them um i think it's going to be flashback to when one of the rocks on guys came and hit him in the head with a hammer or gave him that injection or whatever it might be to make sure you'll never talk again there hess do you think that perhaps the mega fuel led to his condition? Um, I like my pitch better that we're going to see a flashback. The bad people did this thing to him as opposed to, sorry, bro, you were at a reasonably, you know, I mean, I, I, I know nothing. I know very little about the oil industry. Fine. I know the Exxon Valdez crashed and that was on an oil rig. And I know the oil rig in the Gulf blew its cap. Uh, there's always gas for my car whenever I need to fill it up. So I assume most of the oil rigs work just fine. And I assume that they're, you know, fairly safe, safe enough. If this guy got a bad turn because the super fuel, you know, shot him in the face and he didn't turn into a, you know, wall crawler or a guy with wings or whatever. Um, okay. But again, I feel like that could just be, oh no, I got chemicals on me like the flash. Now I'm catatonic. That's not as emotionally rich as a guy came for you and, okay, fine. So I can make rocks on any worse because we see them at their worst or we see them as this evil company. But, you know, like at least that'll be some more personal stakes to it. What pushed Tandy back from the door in her vision? Pete, that's an easy answer. Okay, I think that that was one of two things. Either some sort of bumping into the powers that Tyrone has, whether he somehow is connected to that vision or, or whatever it might be. That's one option. A second option is there's some, it, 
this darkness in Hess's mind, which it has caused the block, you know, let's just say, I don't know, alien parasite or something like that, uh, or, you know, brain damage that has led to areas of his brain that he can't access, that she can't access. Perhaps that is the darkness. And if only it could be combated, Pete, with the light, the light of Tandy Bowen. And Pete, who is our light? Who is it that shone down upon Fantastic Geek to keep our our wee ship afloat there in the Gulfin waters? It's our patrons on patreon.com slash Fantastic Geek. Never pushing back, always pushing us forward. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. And there's all sorts of levels you can go to from there. There's the divine pairing level where you get to join us to record a podcast of your own all sorts of perks so get yourself over to patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash fantastic geek and check it out today well pete we are now going to use some electronic devices for text communication which oh uh, by the way, would have been nice if Tyrone used text communication to give O'Reilly a heads up that she was close to getting her brains blown out. But, you know, Pete, I guess he's only a high school senior. He doesn't text. Who has written some text stuff about us, though? Well, we put the call out for some iTunes reviews, and boy, have you responded. Dr. Bob K. writes in another helpful and fun podcast by Fantastic Geek, five stars. Matt and Pete continued to podcast the MCU with fun and informative conversations. They call them the way they see them. And while they are fans of the MCU, they're not blind fans. They praise the good stuff and call out the bad stuff. Always an honor to have Dr. Bob weigh in a man of great sagacity. Therefore, Pete, I assume what he says must be true and I will take his kind words. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Strange Lover writes in a review headlined, Why Would You Listen to Anyone Else? Five stars. Pete and Matt are the best MCU podcasters. As far as I'm concerned, they are the MCU. Wow. Well. Kind words, indeed. Uh, don't tell Kevin Feige. He might get a little, <laughs> a little jealous that we are the MCU. But uh, yes. I, I think, I think a little extra, a little extra uh, love sent in that, and, and received certainly with the same sentiment. Yeah, that's super high praise. Thank you, Doctor Strange Lover. Last review here from ATL Wordfinder, headlined "Always the Best MCU Podcasters." Another five star review, and it reads, "It's almost as fun to listen to them recap and discuss the MCU shows and movies as it is to watch." Matt and Peter are consistent and concise, and they add context and clarity to the works. They clearly love the content the MCU provides and Star Trek Discovery, too, but they're not afraid to give their honest opinions when they're less than pleased with a show. I never, all caps, miss an MCU podcast from Fantastic Geek. Wow. Well... Apropos review there. Thanks, of course, to the uh, to to the writer of it. This is an episode, Pete, where I I must confess, from beginning to end, I've I've been a little uh, little cross towards it. I also think perhaps this might have been a uh, you know 
a bit more of a lively discussion for the episode. So I think that uh, calling it how you're seeing it, bowing to no one other than to the uh, the quality that you yourself are capable of, that's what makes a great podcast. And I think this was a darn good one this time. Pete, looking ahead, looking to the future where one lives and one dies, should people be in touch with me or be, should people be in touch with you? I think they should be in touch with us. But I'll give you my contact info just in case. You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R, J, Ketelar, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,027 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Visit fantasticgeek.com. Leave a comment there. Check us out on Gmail, Instagram, and Twitter where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. The one word, the PH, the all that today. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we'll be talking, uh, let's see, Luke Cage on Sunday. We also will be talking Ant-Man, I believe, before that on Sunday. Uh, yes, uh, Ant-Man morning or afternoon, Luke Cage in the evening, Luke Cage again on Tuesday and uh, Thursday before we are back with episode 107 of Cloak and Dagger. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. When we stop looking for something, that's when we let it disappear. Disappear.